Help from the Garden podcast. This is episode 11. I am Nick Caputo, the creator of the Caputo Method of Holistic Ease. I am here with Brian Mirabella, also known as Breathing with Brian on Instagram. Welcome, Brian. Good to have you on here. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be here with you. So we have a lot of topics that we want to talk about today, a lot of cool information to share. I know Brian has a lot of cool information to share, and uh, I'm excited for this link up. It's been a long time coming. I've been following Brian for a long time. He's got a lot of awesome information when it comes to breathing and the science behind breathing. And Brian is also on the fruitarian path. So we're, you know, the mucusless yes. diet path. Yeah. To the, the uh, fruitarian path. Yeah. So uh, we're going to talk about all things human performance in this episode. And we're kind of, you know, we picked human performance as the topic so we can kind of let it go in whatever direction it goes. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And thank you to everybody who tunes in and shares the space with us. It's really going to be awesome, I'm sure. Absolutely. So what would you like to start with, Brian? What do you want to talk about first? Well, to be quite honest, I'm a, even though I've been a personal trainer for 34 years, um, I'm 52, and I got started on the journey very early, I would like to dive right into breathing because your side of breathing, I don't know much about, except for the fact that I read the inner bliss of fire. <laughs> so okay. I, I know what I read in the book, but I don't have experience with changing your state of consciousness through specific breathing techniques. I'm of the opinion, okay. the opinion through chemistry that if I can change my daily chemistry, then I can achieve a higher resonance. And when I achieve that a higher resonance, I live high. But now I am living pretty high and I do have a higher resonance with my particular number that we can talk about chemistry wise. So I would like to actually experience uh, a breathwork journey as the way you teach it. So maybe you could start off telling me a little bit about what you do and then I can add in what I do. And Okay, for sure. Yeah, honestly, that's an interesting uh, way to like denote the differences between the way that we teach because I do teach a lot of breathwork that is like sitting down, eyes closed, lights off, blindfold kind of sessions that are very um, diving deep within yourself type thing. And I'm just very new to the breathing as it relates to working out and, you know, optimization of human performance when it comes to like sympathetic nervous system stuff. So it's interesting. Um, I've been learning a lot from you and yeah, m most of the stuff that I do is slowing down the breath so I use, I mean, a variety of different techniques, postures, positions, muscular contractions. We're aligned on a lot of the same things as far as the tongue posture goes and the neck posture goes and a lot of things as far as, you know, the muscular contractions. It's very similar. A lot of things with yoga and like a lot of the athletic stuff is very, very similar. And I've, I've come to learn that through seeing your page. And I do th things with sounds. So we do different um, – like I guess you could say they're mantras or chants, but different sounds for different organs, different parts of the spine, different teeth, yeah. a lot of different stuff. Reflexology, massage during the breath work or stimulating different areas of the body while you are doing the breath work. I also do a lot of breathing when it relates to sex. So like partners and how like, you know, how to breathe during sex to optimize the experience with your partner and for men to last longer and things like that, you know, to retain the seed and all that good stuff. So yeah. I'm new to diving into the breathing as far as athleticism goes. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm entirely new to it, but as far as like diving deep into it, I'm pretty new to it. I'm pretty familiar with nasal breathing. I mean, I've been working on that for half a decade now and you know, I can run 
a solid 10 mile run without taking a mouth breath the whole time. Um, but I'm new to the holds during the workouts, which I think is really, really cool. I've been working on both the inhales and the exhales. And honestly, I feel really, really like psychedelic on the exhales compared to the inhales. That's right. Um, and I saw that you commented on my post recently, um, the post about the, the inhale hold, uh, push up challenge. Um, mm. and I did the inhale hold cause I feel like more people are used to it. So it's something that people will like be able to do more. But, um, in my personal practice, I do a lot more exhale holds, honestly. And even in my breathwork practice, I do yeah. a lot more exhale holds. I really think that's where the magic is because I mean, my whole path has been on, you know, the breatharian path, teaching myself that, you know, about what I don't need. And, you know, I feel like air is a drug too. And there's a big difference on, um, you know, anything that I guess takes you, you take in that will change the way that you experience life is a drug. So it's not like to say that drugs are bad, but to say that air is a drug is something that it's like, okay, when you're on the exhale hold, it's like, there's nothing in you, but you, you know? So it's like, especially when you're fasted on the exhale holds, it's like there's really nothing in you, but you, so you experience like really genuine sobriety for the first time That's right. or, you know, the first time you do it, you're experiencing genuine sobriety for the first time and you really get to see like how you feel. And yeah. it's a super powerful experience in my, um, in my opinion, my perspective. Yeah. So that's a great observation. And uh, when we talked about the doing the push-up challenge on the inhale, it's funny you say I did chose that because it seems common. And that's exactly why we want to go in a different route. Because for sure. And it's funny because the things you do are subtle breaths, right? So what I want to do is I want to actually bring subtlety back into athletics, which mm -hmm. we don't do. And most humans don't do subtle at all. So when you exhale and you experience powerful changes through exercise, but you get parasympathetic while you're being sympathetic, you mm. elevate higher because you're in the flow state. You don't want to be alert and you don't want to be relaxed. You want to be balanced. You want, to be, you want to be pH neutral balanced even when you're exerting energy because as you're exerting energy you're producing lactic acid and lactate so the way i do it is i teach my body to feed off of its own waste and then as it feeds off of its own waste i can put out more effort delay the onset of fatigue and stiff arm stress to where it can't overwhelm me and then i can make a conscious decision to either fight or flight or put myself into that dorsal vagal position where I can create stillness within that dorsal vagus nerve to where it's like a deer in headlights, where I can calm everything down and allow those gamma rays to come into my brain because everything shuts down and it's that it's above the fight or flight response. So it, it, the deer in headlights can be used for the deer so it knows it's about to die, right? Because its subconscious knows a car's coming at me. It might not know a car's coming at me, but the subconscious, the heart coherence knows six seconds ahead of time, this entity energy is about to experience trauma. Mm. The reason it goes into that dorsal ventral, dorsal nerve is to stop the body from experiencing trauma on a level that will take it with it into its next incarnation. But on the flip side, when you're meditating, you want to activate that dorsal vagus nerve 
so you can get even deeper into the meditation. So it does two different things. And it's called the polyvagal theory sure. by Stephen um, uh, Porsche, I forgot, Por Por Porges, Stephen Porges, the polyvagal theory. And it's quite amazing. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So basically, uh, overall, like what you're saying is when you do like a lot of the exercises, you're trying to bring subtlety as far as the breathing goes into the movement. So more about slow, subtle breathing, despite doing, you know, some intense like physical movements. Correct. Right. If you if you watch a horse run a race, its mouth is never open. <laughs> it's breathing harder, but it's not over breathing. Right. Animals never mm -hmm. over breathe. And. As soon as they overbreathe, what do they do? They stop. They get tired. Or, yeah, stop. When they get tired, they stop. And then, right, they don't wait 20 seconds, have a Tabata timer, wait 20 seconds. Yeah. And go and again. They, they don't do anything until they're fully recovered. So the prey stops, recovers its breath. The predator stops, recovers its breath. It walks around. It goes and sits down until it's ready again. And that's almost like the ancient martial art of Sistema, the Russian martial art, because they stop in between every set and they don't do another set until they are fully, their nervous system's fully recovered. So if it takes five minutes, they wait five minutes. If it takes seven minutes, they wait seven minutes. And then what they do is they have a max effort. And when they do their training, they max out the effort. When the nervous system says no more, they rest. So I'm trying to bring that sort of subtlety back into training. And for athletes, it's almost unheard of. They don't, they're very like, no, I have to put my head through a wall. And they don't realize that all that training, right? There's not very many athletes that make it to the top. Why is that? Most of them burn out. Most hmm. of them deal with injuries and most of them deal with anxiety. There's a very small percentage that make it to the top or stay at the top. Why is that? Something's not right. And it's because they're over-breathing. And when they're over-breathing, they can't control their lactic acid state. So when I'm teaching people in a hypercapnic breath hold, which is following a passive exhalation, is to manage that stress response. But first at a breath hold, then a harder breath hold, and then, you know, I, I went to Peru last year during because I thought that something was going to happen last December 21st. <laughs> I was in the Dominican Republic thinking the same thing. <laughs> so on the night of the 20th, I began my dry fast uh, and I, I dry fasted. And then two days later, I was at Olitaitambo, which is 10,000 feet high. And I was running up the ruins. There were people dying, taking one step at a time. And I'm running up the ruins all the way up to the top. And when I got to the top, I was like, like not, I used to be like, yeah, I fucking did that because I'm a wrestler. I've been a wrestler for 36 years. And I was always about me. I did it. I was able to overcome it. And when I got to the top, I was like, oh my God, what just happened? How did I do that? Like I felt humble in a way because I actually thought about my predecessors and how they must have felt all the time. Their feet were connected to the earth. They were living at high altitude. 
So they were actually maximizing their gas exchange because that's the only way they grew up. So because they grew up high, they were able to manage their gas exchange, which allowed them to be at higher conscious levels to hear mothers speak to them. How else could they have figured things out, like building the pyramids? They had higher knowledge. They were connected. And we aren't connected, right? We lose connection. I think that's a lot of what you're about. I mean, totally. You know, I that's why I love your teachings too, because I mean, you really say some profound <laughs> things the way you write. And I'm like blown away. I'm like, holy shit, this guy's like really connected. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, we're totally aligned on that perspective of you know going back to you know try to do. I like that you use the word predecessors. Um, I guess ancestors would be like a like a synonym. But, you know, the people who were here before us did a lot of things that were pretty profound. And there's a lot of, you know, history that I've looked into and found, you know, there's architecture all over the world, not just the pyramids, all over the world. Right. Every major city in the world and even not even in major cities, there's stuff that is just unexplainable. The connection that people before us had to have had to be able to, you know, get these downloads and learn this information yeah. to be able to That's put together these massive things. Isn't that human performance? Right? For sure, yeah. Human performance in, in all aspects, you know? It's not yeah. just running fast. It's, you know, all right. mental, physical, spiritual, the whole connection to earth. It's all, you know, performing. Right. There's multiple ways to perform. Right. And when I got to the top, it wasn't a physical thing for me. It was an emotional thing for me. Hmm. Because I said, oh, my gosh, I'm living on prana. I was 40 hours into a dry fast at 10,000 yeah. feet. I've only been there for three days. And everybody thought I was going to succumb to the altitude. But when you train a hypercapnic response following a passive exhalation without doing any hyperventilation, you bring the mountain to you. So mm. I knew cognitively that what my teachings tell me is that I should be fine. But I'd never experienced any altitude more than 2,500 feet when I went to Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. So I actually didn't know what to expect. But now I have the experience of that moment. And then three days later, I climbed Patusarai. And that mountain in Peru in the Sacred Valley has its own consciousness. And it's 14,000 feet. And I climbed from 9,000 to 14,000. And when I got to the top, I was with my buddy and his dog. And I was coaching him the whole way because he didn't know how to walk. So I was like we talked about mm -hmm. earlier, I was teaching him to spiral keep the pressure mm -hmm. on the green dot and manage his energy through his, through his spiral, keeping balance and through his breath. And when we got to the top, he was like, I've, I've done this six times. And every time I've done it, I've almost died. He said, and this time I, I can't believe how easy it was. But when I got to the top and we were alone and I was just like, I looked at the mountain. And again, I said, Nick, like, you know, there's a special time during the fall equinox where the sun casts a shadow on the mountain and the mountain casts a shadow of a jaguar. And I was like, I imagined what it was like for these people to live in utter harmony. And I sat down and we meditated, which was only about 20 minutes. And I don't think I'd ever disconnected from my own body more than at that moment, being at that altitude, being breathing as good as I can, having dry fasting for almost 72 hours, being on fruit. And then I was drinking mountain water. 
right out of the stream, which I'd never done in my life. It was really my first experience. And I was just like, of course, of course, God spoke to them, hmm. right? They were connected. I mean, of course, they did bad things too. They killed each other. But they also, they, you know, that's part of the, the meat grinder, right? They were eating meat at the same time, which there. we can talk about. <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, they had higher consciousness, but they also weren't, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't enlightened enough. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. And I mean, I guess that's why the civilization fell. You know what I mean? You always, yeah. you know, energy always comes full circle. Wherever you're out of alignment, life will expose it and, you know, teach you whatever you need to be taught. And I mean, at least right. for us living where we are now in the timeline, I feel like we are exactly where we're supposed to be because life is super interesting. Like we're here to figure out what was, you know, the history that was destroyed and to figure out who we are and where we're supposed to go based on what we've been given. It's like if they gave you all the tools and you had all the downloads and all the information right there in front of you, like life would kind of be boring. I feel like need life needs to come up and thrive yeah. and then go down. And like, it always has to be balanced and waves. So otherwise it would just be, it would be boring. And you know, it's lonely at the top. They say it's right. be boring if life was always, you know, figured out for us. Right. So I think it's a beautiful thing that we get to figure it out on our own. And yeah, we get you're to go so, down this you're, so you're so wise. You have such wisdom, which is really nice to see. Cause, and I don't mean to harp on age, but what are you, 26? 24. 24. I mean, shit. You know, actually, my son is a lot like you. He's 23, and he's been meditating for five years. And he, he holds mm -hmm. on to his oil. He knows how to manage right. his energy. And he's, through meditation, he's basically unlocked his subconscious. And he's made himself into a superhuman being through breath and meditation. And he has the ability to see things like in a way he's my greatest teacher. I found out that he's my cosmic twin. We've been doing this for eons and he's on such an advanced level. And it's just really beautiful to know that people at, at your level are helping the world because we need that really really importantly it's very needed especially from a man right because we know the divine we need the divine feminine to rise up but for a man that's really important because we have to break that patriarchal you know food grinder energy for sure yeah it seems like the relationship with you and your son is pretty similar to that of me and my dad as well oh, cool. he, my dad's 53 and I'm 24, so pretty pretty similar age too. And yeah. I feel like me and my dad do learn from each other a lot too. I've taught him a lot, and he's taught me a lot about a lot of things. So it's been yeah. uh, it's been a cool journey to you know be on it kind of together. Especially since I started to you know pull my head out of my ass and start to actually like care about things. It's been uh, it's been a cool journey for sure. Nice, nice. So uh, yeah, so you know in in terms of breathing, the way I teach it is. I come at it from the biochemistry point of view. Uh, I mean, I, I had, I had for me, my journey was coming at it from a cognitive aspect, left brain thinking, and now I'm tapping into my right brain through fruitarianism, especially after reading the book Return to the Brain of Eden. Have you read that? I have not. Nick, you're, you're going to be blown away. Oh my, my God. My friend in the other room is like, yeah, you got to read it. <laughs> you have to read Return to the Brain of Eden by Tony Wright. It'll, it'll set you on um, 
on a monumental exploration. Oh my gosh. I mean, this guy, this guy's done sleep deprivation. And he's I've actually done some sleep deprivation too. It's uh it's some seriously profound stuff. He did like eight or ten days. And oh, he became I got my record seven. Wow. Well, seven is in the epic of Gil Gilgamesh. When you hit that seven, your left brain goes to sleep. And when your left brain goes to sleep, your analytical brain, your neurons, your ego neurons shut down. And then your right brain, which is the God brain, wakes up. Because mm. science tells us, like all the science. It felt that way. <laughs> wow. See, I, it I've felt never... that way. It was almost a little scary too, though, because I was super sensitive. So I did this at the end of a fast. My whole fast was 126 days total. And this was, this was around December 2020 when we thought the crazy shit was going to happen. So I really like prepared. And I did three months, 90 days on green juice. And then I did three weeks, 21 days on my urine. And then I stopped peeing and just did 15 days dry on just air. And the last seven days of that, I just had so much energy that I just wasn't sleeping. I stayed up for seven days. And then the reason why I broke it was because I just felt so sensitive like the noises of like the motos, like, you know, the, the, the motorcycles that people drive around in the DR and like the horns and the people, like the loudness, like I found myself like staying like home and just like laying in the sun on my roof and like trying, you know, so in tune with the birds, like listening to the birds and knowing what time it was because a certain bird that I heard like in a certain tree, like it was like I had everything in my, in my circle dialed and it's kind of exactly where I wanted to go on my path in the sense where I've been chasing, not chasing, but like pursuing right. presence and really right. slowing everything down to see how fast everything actually moves in, yeah. in the moment. Like there's so much that we miss in every second, every moment, every now that when you slow everything down, slow down the breathing, slow down the eating, slow down everything, stop giving your body so much stimulation, you realize how stimulating life itself actually is yes. and how much you don't really need all that extra stimulation. But at the same time, life is now in the world that we live in so overstimulating. So yeah, what's that do stimulation doing? Draining your energy. And you, yeah. were, you were cultivating it. You were harnessing it. Yeah. And I totally – I decided to end up breaking it with papaya because I felt like I needed to almost like numb enough to be able to be like comfortable again. I was like almost scared by the level of sensitivity. Um, and I'm excited to go back into that state when I'm when – I, you know when the cycle continues and I get back to being ready to that. But um, yeah, it was something that I felt like I dove into before I was a hundred percent emotionally ready and like underestimated the level of sensitivity that would really come with that state. Like being awake in the middle of the night, like five days after not sleeping, like being like, I would go to the beach at night when no one was there. That's when I would walk around when everyone, because with COVID, whatever, everybody was, you know, sleeping at night. There was a curfew. I would sneak to the beach with my surfboard and I would lay out on my board and just look at the stars in the water and just be like so connected to everything, like oh feeling the rhythm of everything. And you realize that life really is like, you know, the, the universe, the one song everything is like an instrument and like the waves and the wind and the clouds moving and the moon circling. It's like all instruments that are going like in the right, like in the perfect, like organization and rhythm. And it's like almost to the point where like, I was able to like beat drop it. Like I was out in the storm one night, like just laying on the beach, like in the sand. And I was able to like guess when the thunder was going to come. I was like, or the lightning was going to come. I was like, it feels like it's going to be on beat. Like, you know, when you can tell listening to a song that the beat is about to drop mm -hmm. and it's building and it's building and it's like, dum, bum, 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 bum. you know, it's like the same thing. I can like feel it with the wind and the waves. And I'm like, 
here it is. Boom. And it was like right there. And I'm like, man, I'm feeling it. I'm figuring it out. So uh, profound. You, you might've been controlling it. It almost felt like I was. I mean, that's like I was creating the song and listening to it at the same time. And it's kind of like a gray area because it's like, we are experiencing ourselves. We are creating this whole reality, but at the same time, we're also kind of putting ourselves in this illusion on purpose so that we can experience what we create without knowing we created it. And it's just such a beautiful, like creator creation, like oneness and separation type, like dance. Right. Well, you know, I really want to continue on this topic because, you know, I've done a lot of plant medicines in my life and what you experienced was pure presence and consciousness without having to take anything. And yep. that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to choose those medicines to give us the awareness and then realize that we are the medicine. And I did, yep. I did ayahuasca nine times, which actually wow. is not good for you. I did bufo five times. And I, after I did the bufo and I had some really great experiences that were pretty out there, like really life-changing. But then I realized that I was actually blowing open my dormant energy channels too fast. Mm. And that could, be, that could be very, very dangerous. And what you, did, what you did in a correct spiritual practice was slowly increase your energy, which filled all your chakras. And then when your chakras lost the the manifested trapped traumas, you became present. And that is the correct way to do it. The Buddha didn't Definitely. become enlightened. You know, it took him a long time. Jesus yeah. it took a long time. I mean, like, it doesn't, so when people do these plant medicines, they think, well, they're chasing, they're expecting. Mm -hmm. And now I'll never do it again. So now I'm on, and it's only been two years, but now I'm on the pure path. I will never experience a psychedelic plant medicine again. I've learned everything I need to learn. But the one thing I will do, and I'm doing it next Sunday, is Cambo. Combo, right? Yeah. Combo. Because this is my this is gonna be my 10th time. But I had a lot of toxicity in my body that needed to be over that needed to be removed. And mm. uh I've asked my higher self and my higher self says no you you need to do this. It's in your best interest because I still have a tiny bit of organ damage around my adrenal glands. And this is, this is what I love your trademark, TCM. So my acupuncturist, it, you should go to him. He's a Qigong master. He's Chinese. He's the same year as me, year as a rooster, but 11 years older. And he, mm. because he's a Qigong master, he, know, he can read your energy so he knows exactly where to put the needles. And, it's epic. And uh, he's also a former gastroenterologist. So he's got mm. the MD side of it, but then he left that to become a full-time acupuncturist. So when I started my fruit journey, uh, he said to me, I don't think you should do this. And I said, why, Dr. Ming? He said, because you need more protein. You work out a lot. And I said, Dr. Ming, I guess I never told you, but I've already been be vegan for four years. And he said, okay, well, you need to eat more. So then I decided, okay, I'm going on this fruitarianism, this mucusless diet. And I see him every week. And after four weeks, he said to me, you're changing rapidly. This diet's working for you. You should stay on it and I'm learning from you. And then eight months into it, he said to me, when I, when I went to him, 
I had been told by a former acupuncturist when I was 47 that guys like me have a heart attack in their 60s and die. And I was like, what? You know, here I am, jacked, ripped to shreds. I'm like, how can I be unhealthy? But again, I was still ego. I was running from my subconscious previous belief system. And mm. I left her because there was a moment where she told me I couldn't heal. So I said, okay, this is not the energy that I need right now. I need somebody who believes in, in what I can achieve because I know I can heal, whatever it is. So when For I sure. told him the assessment, he went like this. I agree with her assessment. And I was like, you mean I've been going for two and a half years and I'm not healed yet? But again, I didn't get it because yeah. I haven't had the experience of being free. Like, I, again, like, I think you really had the experience of being free, Nick. Like what yeah. you just told me is- I would say I have, definitely. Is amazing. And I still haven't had that experience except when I did the 5-AMEO DMT, but it was fleeting, right? I'll, ne I'll never have it again unless I go on that journey. And I believe that it's possible. So eight months later, he says to me, Brian, when you came to me, I told you what I, what I, what I saw on your body, that your kidneys were in sub-basement level eight and there was no way you were going to heal. He goes, what you have done with your body is remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. You're, not only have you reversed all of your kidney damage, but you're now strengthening your kidney chi energy and you're getting younger. And I was like, yeah. oh boy, this is awesome. Because I'm, I'm getting confirmation. I know I feel good, but now I'm getting physical confirmation from a doctor. And then COVID happened in Manhattan. And I didn't see it for eight mm. months. And I was on, I really fruited hard because I, I wasn't tempted to go out or anything like that with people where I might have even a salad or or vegetables. So yeah. Later, he said to me, oh, my God. He's like, are you still on your diet? I said, of course. He goes, you've gotten better. He said, have you had any work? I said, none at all. He goes, Brian, you've gotten better without having any acupuncture. And I was like, nice. yeah. And then I said, well, I this, this is going to be what I'm doing for life. Like, again, you and I talked earlier about once in a blue moon, when cooked food sneaks back in for like uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas, for me, if I eat cooked vegetables, that's going down the rabbit hole. But, you know, ideally, I don't really see myself ever changing my state of where I want to go with my health and energy. So, but I, I would like to achieve and feel what you did on a very natural and you know, primal level, which I really, really admire and impressed by. Yeah, I've always been an advocate for the process being gentle, that there is no rush. And that we, you know, I try even not to use the word heal because from my perspective, I feel like we are never sick. It's like we're just under an illusion. And the realization is not possible without the illusion. Without the illusion, the realization wouldn't be as beautiful as it is. So I feel like it's all exactly the way it's supposed to be. And there is no sense of even thinking that we are sick or that something is wrong. It's more so just we have steps that have triggered us to get on the path. Yeah. Um, you know, like for me, what started me was breaking my neck. I broke my neck snowboarding in Colorado. Wow. I fractured my C6. 
I did a backflip off a cliff and I landed on my front foot and my board sunk into the snow and my face just went right into the ground, head feet, head feet, tomahawked like five times and fractured my C6. They told me I was going to be in a neck brace for two years and I was like, no fucking way. I was like, that's not going to happen. Like, I'm definitely going to heal faster. I just like wouldn't let myself think otherwise. And this was when I was really doing research and trying to find out like, what can I do with my body? How can I, you know, I know I eat like shit. So if I eat good, you know, and, and fix it up, like, you know, and do other things that might help me heal faster, I'm going to, you know, I got to get back to doing what I'm doing at that time. And that's really what it started out for as me. It's like, okay, the only thing, the only time I really feel alive is when I escape death and do some crazy shit. So I need to do that as soon as possible again. And that's really what it was for me in the beginning. And now, you know, I was out of the neck brace in three months when they told me two years and then I was done with physical therapy in three months. So six months total recovery before I was back pretty much doing everything again. Amazing. When they told me two years of neck brace and this was literally, I didn't even start the breath work yet. I didn't start any kind of like reflexology or anything else. I just went fruitarian and I was a super picky eater. So I was eating nothing but blueberries and cantaloupe from whole foods. And mm. even that did it. <laughs> right. So super powerful stuff. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, well, like Professor Eret coined the phrase in the late 1800s, and he called it the equation of life. Vitality equals power minus obstructions. And when mm -hmm. you remove the obstructions from your lymph tissue, which are acids, metabolites, and that's really why we age, right? Because we, we don't, we don't, we get dehydrated, but we're dehydrated on an oxygen level. We're starved for oxygen. So aging is really just oxidation. It's literally rusting yep. from the inside out. Because yep. You're not eliminating the obstructions that you put in your body or that you're forced to breathe or forced to drink, right? Because you're unaware of it. So when you remove the obstructions, all the stem cells that you were born with are still there. And when they get out of the way, like on COVID when the 405 freeway in LA was free and there were no cars on it. And there's that one car and he's just driving along. You're conserving energy. And when you're, not, when you're conserving energy, you're not wasting energy, right? You're not, you're not insulin, right? You're conserving all that and you're keeping your Kundalini and you're cultivating it and your, your oil is growing. It's growing stronger. I mean, this is, this is really profound stuff that most people, you know, look, we, we would be living in utopia if everybody, I don't want to say lived like we're living. But I do believe that we kind of feel like, I believe that you're on the path. If everybody had that knowledge, if we were taught it, we would already be, 5D would be around us. It is here, but we would already totally. be experiencing utopia. Because the consciousness would have already shifted the planet like that. Yeah, there would be no governments and there would be no corporations because there would be no one supporting them and buying their stuff. So, yeah, if everyone was in alignment with the same kind of philosophy and same experience and wisdom, then it would totally be a different world. Right. But um, I think it's, uh, I mean, at least from my perspective for myself, it's like I do feel like I'm here to teach. And this is why I do go back and forth between eating, even like after like experiencing what I've experienced, it's like life, life always has both sides of the spectrum. And I've really been in the last like year or two, really been experimenting with, you know, 
the balance between extremes in pretty much like every way possible. So like the extreme fasting with, you know, periods of eating where like I go into the fast and, you know, to go without is to go within. So that's really like when I get downloads and that's when I learn and then I go back to eating and then that's more like I'm teaching, you know, I'm, I'm re integrating with society and relating to people and, and teaching what I learned when I went in, you know, you go in and you learn, you come out and you teach. And that's kind of been my flow recently. And I honestly have also been experimenting a little with the animal side of things as far as raw dairy goes, stuff like that. I was telling you before about the raw goat milk and stuff and trying to find a balance between the plant and the animal kingdoms in a way that is still, um, you know, morally ethical and, you know, still does no harm and is in the best interest of the world. And I've learned a lot through interacting with people on the animal sides of things and seeing testimonials from people that have honestly had some really profound experiences on the animal side of things. And coming from my background of the vegan, fruitarian, you know, breatharian lifestyle, it's been interesting for me to try to piece them together and find how they can relate in harmony and how there's bullshit on both sides. You know, if you're cooking steak and you're, you know, mix, you know, doing things like that, it's totally like out of alignment the same way that like cooking plantains and like sweet potatoes would be. So there's, there's BS on both sides and there's good, you know, there's ways to fit it in in more alignment with the body's design on both sides of things like the raw milk or, you know, other like raw dairy type things. And it's been interesting. So that's been my flow lately, trying to see how, you know, there's never a spectrum where one side of the spectrum is better than the other side. It's kind of just trying to find a balance between every spectrum in life that I can possibly find. Everything that I divide myself from myself with the idea of, I'm trying to go on to the side that I feel like is the bad side and trying to find out that it's not really that bad and that ideally I can find a balance between the two. And right. it's been a beautiful process for the last year or so. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really great. That's lovely to hear. That's, that's really awesome. Um, well, yeah, you're, you're motivated. Let, let's talk a little bit about urine therapy. Perfect. Yeah, okay. for sure. So as I wait, before I ask you questions, let me, let me tell everybody that I experimented with it about four years ago. But as I was telling you, I unconsciously experimented with it. I read a book called your, it's uh, nature's perfect medicine. So I read the book, I heard what it was in the book. So I just started immediately drinking it. But I was drinking it as if I would be eating vegetables or eating steak, unconsciously consuming. So I think I was, I was unconsciously consuming my urine thinking the urine is going to help me. And I didn't put any intention into what I was doing. Hmm. And uh, then I started to, um, maybe like three years later, I started, I became a psyche subconscious facilitator. So it's this wonderful spiritual practice. It's like NLP on steroids. So what takes NLP six sessions and Psyche, we could do within 15 to 30 minutes. And it was originated by an NLP master teacher through the Ho'opono, um, like, you know, philosophy in Hawaii. And I started, I took this oath to become an Isamotuk, which is from the Inuits in Alaska, where is the keeper of the sacred space. And I basically learned how to, to work with applied kinesiology. So I use myself as a pendulum. So when I ask my higher self, is this in my best interest? My body moves forward. If you stand completely still and you make an agreement with yourself that when I ask myself a question, if it's positive, my nervous system will move my body forward. So if, the, if it's positive for me, my, my body will move forward in affirmation. 
if it's negative for me, my body will move backward. You could do that like this, but I like to do it standing because if I'm standing, I know that the energy is moving me. So I would take that urine and I tried it again. And every morning I would wake up and I would ask my body the question and I would move backward. So I only asked my que the question in the morning and I never thought about doing it in the afternoon or night. So now having been reconnected with you, I started to ask it in the morning and in the mornings it still says no, but I said, let me continue to ask it every time I pee. And all of a sudden, two or three urines later, my body started moving forward and I was like, oh my God. And then as I drank it, I had the intention that this is healing me. And it's only been four days. <laughs> so now nice. back on the urine therapy and I'm gonna continue to intentionally heal myself with this beautiful medicine that's for me. And now I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be completely like raw fruit for the next seven days. I'm gonna go into my, my cambo journey. I'm gonna be on the urine therapy and I'm gonna see what, what, it, what it offers me, but I'm gonna continue now after that because I'm on another level where I'm experiencing it on a, on a deeper knowing, an inner knowing where I wasn't, I wasn't using that before. And again, it's just experience, right? For sure. It's just experience. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Tell, I, love, tell me about I, love, I love hearing about people getting, getting on the UT train. Something that I would recommend um, with this uh, practice as you move forward with like the awareness and the intention, it's, common i mean i've done it on camera i used to do it way more often to chug it and drink it fast even though like there's you know because sometimes you pee a lot and there's a lot but sipping it and like swishing it around your mouth and allowing your saliva to mix with it before you swallow it is really like helpful for the intention setting and for the you know the whole chemical everything i saw actually recently someone sent it to me it was not a study wait, wait, wait. but kind of like a non-official study before you go into that study, let me ask you. So if we're consciously drinking like that and we take our time, does it, do we have to finish all of it? Or does it, like, could we just do maybe half of it or what? Like, what do you think? So, I mean, in my opinion, there really is no wrong way to do it. There's no time when you shouldn't drink it. There's no time where you have to drink it. It's more so like go with your intuition and what your body feels like really. Cause I still don't drink it every time. I'm just an advocate for not wasting it and putting it in the toilet. Like I'll pee on the ground in the grass before I pee in the toilet and give it to the pharmaceutical companies that have contracts with the sewage companies. So like for that, like it's kind of just like I advocate for using it and not letting it go to waste because it is sacred fluid. It is your consciousness. You know, you're turning breath into blood and then you're drinking more than you need and diluting your blood and then having to fill some because there's too much blood. So, I mean, spill some. So, right. you know, if you're going to let it out of your body, at least use it. Even if you're not drinking it, use it in your hair, use it in your beard or, you know, in your, on your skin, in your eyes, in your ears, you know, snorting it for, to clean your sinuses. There's a million different applications for it. things. You can soak your hands or feet in it and you can use it as like tanning oil, you know, put it on your dry brush, put it on your skin, go out in the sun. There's a lot of different applications for it. But I mean, as far as finishing all of it versus not, you know, when you're drinking it slower, really like once it's not warm anymore, I'm kind of turned off to it. So like, you know, depending on how fast you can go with it, you know, once it's kind of not warm anymore, I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll use this in my hair or something. You know, it's not as, it's not as enjoyable for me when 
it's not warm, like fresh warm anymore. There's no rule after 15 minutes that it's too oxidized or something? No. So the interesting thing about the urine is it actually gets better with time. So if you were to let it, if you were to let it sit for like an extended period of time, it act like the stem cells in the urine, like the urine is like its own organism basically. So if you were to like seal it in a jar and put it away for like a month, those stem cells multiply, the electronegative charge actually intensifies. So all of the benefits of the urine actually get more enhanced from aging the urine because it's almost like it'll purify itself and you'll see kind of like similar to how the body will release like things out of the skin the urine will kind of send all the things that don't belong, you know, something that makes it through the filtration process to the outside of the jar and it'll stick to the outside of the jar. Right, so that's what I wanted to ask you about. When you see the sediment, those are acids. So why, how do you not ingest those acids or you still can? So you definitely can because anything that's in your urine has already been through every vein in your body. So it's already, it's already been through your whole body. So if it was going to hurt you, it would have already. But that being said, I've noticed a couple things. One is that this, the sediment is very psychedelic. So I was, you know, I'm a trial and error guy. I hear things, but like I like to try things. So I went in the bottom of aged urine on the jar. It was maybe like three months aged. And I scooped just the white sediment off the bottom of the jar in my pinky. And I just snorted it. And it burned my face like so bad. And like I remember closing my eyes and just like putting my palms over my eyes and just seeing like, the craziest fractals and rainbow colors and everything. And I was like, wow, this is like a psychedelic. This is like what I experienced when I did like my first cold plunge and like my first like extended exhale hold. And like, you know, a lot of like anything that makes me see colors like that is medicine in my opinion mm. um, from my experience. So wow. I was like, okay, this is interesting. But at the same time, it's also very intense and burning. So from my experience, like messing with it and trial and erroring everything, I've come to the conclusion that the sediment is very, very heavily detoxing. And I've also come, you know, full circle with my perspective on psychedelics, how all medicine, even herbs, all medicines, right, are poisons. And those poisons bring your sickness to a peak so that the body purges and gets rid of things. Even the psychedelics, like when you take ayahuasca, you get the shits or you throw up or, you you know, you have that initial purging before the, the beautiful psychedelic part. So it's... You know, the medicines are getting things out of the body and restoring balance so then you can experience that psychedelic nature. So that's what I think the sediment in the urine was for me in a sense. It was like a purging psychedelic type thing. And I also think that, you know, it's kind of like a medicine, not a food as far as the sediment goes in the aged urine. So manipulating um, my own tests for myself with like drinking the urine aged with the sediment in it and like mixing it up and stirring it and drinking it compared to drinking it without the sediment where like, you know, the sediment's on the bottom. I pour some, maybe I leave a quarter of the jar left with all the sediment in it and try to get as like much clean liquid as possible. I've noticed that the sediment is super detoxing and medicinal. Some people drink it and throw up. Some people drink it and shit their brains out. I shit out a pile of worms the first time I, I drank eggs for the first time. And it was crazy for me. Um, so I, on the other side, when I've taken the sediment out, it's not really super detoxing and it's like super energizing where I feel like, you know, I'm ready to work out or like I don't sleep that night or like my breath work, like I'm holding my, my holds longer than normal. And it's just more of like a performance enhancement type thing when it comes to the no sediment aged. And then when the sediment is in there, it's more of like a, you better stay close to a toilet today type thing. Cause your body's ready to get rid of shit. 
because mm. it's like a, it's a trigger. So I do think that there is a degree of waste in urine, depending on how clean your body is. There is a right. potential for the body to eliminate in that way. It's not like it's there's never anything you know that's not beneficial for the body in there. That's not a hundred percent true. However, that being said, that stuff is beneficial in a different way. So it's not necessarily nutrients, but it is to some degree like very medicinal because it gets things out of the body. And there is like DMT, small amounts of DMT and other like psychedelic compounds of serotonin and other neurotransmitters in the urine that also, you know, multiply as the urine ages. So it does get more psychedelic as well. Like after drinking it, you will definitely feel it and sometimes even see it. Like there was one time where I drank it and I was at this sauna place, this Russian sauna place uh, in Fairlawn, New Jersey. And I was getting out of the sauna and sitting in this chair, taking a couple breaths after I got out of the sauna. And I just remember the walls were just like, and I was just like, wow, this is crazy. I haven't done a psychedelic in over a year. And I literally feel like I just took five tabs of acid. (laughs) Fascinating, man. Fascinating. Yeah, I went on a long journey of like anti-psychedelics for a while. I went really deep into psychedelics within within like two or three years. I probably took about 100 tabs of acid, just really diving deep in. This was like before the fruitarian thing, maybe like a year into the fruitarian journey where I was still messing with, with the acid. Um, and it was honestly just because I had better access to somebody who I trusted to get acid compared to mushrooms. But really, I had a lot of fun on them and I really learned a lot about myself and opened my mind up to different perspectives and saw the world differently because of it and couldn't get enough of it. And then came across uh, a mentor of mine, Taylor Budd. I don't know if you're familiar with him, who kind of gave me a perspective on, you know, the body being its own psychedelic and how the drugs, you know, the psychedelic drugs make you release chemicals that are already in you. And that by manipulating the breath and by getting, you know, less numb to stimulation by not, you know, overstimulating yourself. You can actually get into these states naturally. And I was like, course, this is it. I'm doing it. I'm on the path. I'm not taking psychedelics anymore. People think it's the brain. People think it's the brain has a cannabinoid system that the plant was there to activate it. And it means that your brain activates itself. Exactly. I get this question so many times when it comes to cannabis and why do we have an endocannabinoid system then if we're not supposed to consume cannabis, cannabis, it's because you already make endocannabinoids every time that you activate your parasympathetic nervous system. Every right. single time you release endocannabinoids yourself. Now, do you have the ability to process them externally? Sure. Do you have the ability to process external minerals and you know other things from foods? Of course you do. But do you need to? No. You don't need to, but you get to. And that's the beauty of the human experience. It's, it's doing things because you want to rather right. than thinking that you need to. Right. And, and now, because we just touched on that topic, when I talk about biochemistry of, of breathing, it really comes down to cellular respiration. And there's a physiological law on cellular respiration. And everybody in the world needs to know this, and people don't. And it's because we weren't taught it. So in 1904, there was a Danish scientist named Christian Bohr. And he originated, he was 85. And he originated this law on cellular respiration, not... I breathe in, I get oxygen, I breathe out, I remove CO2. That's regular respiration. That's how the, the alveoli is the little door that allows the, the CO2 to get out and the oxygen to get in. But on a, on a molecular level, on a cellular level, actually, I can show you really quickly. I already have this diagram, and this would be great. Perfect. <laughs> the, Bohr law, the Bohr law was originated by Niels Bohr's father. So Niels Bohr was quantum 
physicist, Nobel laureate. And his father came up with this law. And here's my lung. So I breathe oxygen into my lung. So I got my little alveoli. Oxygen gets into the alveoli. So it goes in. The oxygen gets into the alveoli. And it goes into the capillary. So this is the capillary. And then CO2 comes out of the capillary as a byproduct of metabolism. Notice I didn't say waste. As a byproduct of metabolism. Now, the oxygen, once it's in the capillary, and a capillary is literally one cell thick. So each strand of hair can hold 10 capillaries. So now the big circle is a red blood cell. Now we're going to pretend that red blood cell is in this capillary, and it's one cell thick. So now as oxygen comes into the capillary, the oxygen is a little child, and the red blood cell is a school bus. And when hmm. the oxygen gets into the school bus and it sits in the seat, it needs a seat belt. And that seatbelt hmm. is hemoglobin. So hmm. hemoglobin has a heavy iron atom. And that's why iron is so important to human beings. Because the iron at the bottom of hemoglobin is what oxygen is attracted to. So hmm. oxygen has an affinity for hemoglobin because of the iron at the center. And oxygen needs a carrier in the blood. It needs to be carried through the body. And typically, only about 2% is soluble. So that means if, if I'm 2% soluble, it means that I'm 98% saturated with oxygen. So if I have a pulse oximeter on, it's going to say I'm 98% saturated. And people think that they need to be 99 or 100. No. If I'm 99 or 100, that means there's no oxygen being released from hemoglobin, and that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. That's how I age. That's oxidative stress. Interesting. Now, the Bohr law says that in order for oxygen and hemoglobin to disassociate from one another, I need to have carbon dioxide present. And carbon dioxide is the, the most important molecule in the human body because it's produced by every single tissue because of metabolism. So if mm. carbon dioxide is present, it goes into the red blood cell and it signals hemoglobin to disassociate from, from oxygen. So when we do a breath hold following a passive exhalation, carbon dioxide levels go up, carbon dioxide levels increase, oxygen levels decrease. Oxygen released. Hydrogen ions flood the blood. They become more acidic. And as the blood becomes more acidic, we were talking about this earlier in your original post, when that happens, as the blood becomes more acidic, the body starts to turn carbon dioxide into carbonic acid. And then carbonic acid disassociates into bicarbonate. So your body learns to feed off of the waste which is the byproduct of metabolism, carbon dioxide. And as I feed off the waste on a daily basis, I create adaptations in my body that learn to buffer the acidity of the blood. And I feed off of my own waste like marine phytoplankton feed off of their own waste in the ocean. So I become this self-replicating, self-reorganizing species and I can heal anything on my body through the power of CO2 and the liberation of oxygen. 
and it's a law and no one teaches this. So this is at the root and the heart of my teaching. I teach people foundational, fundamental breathing. So before I would do inner blissifier breathing, I would make sure that people already cultivated, now this is my own personal method, but I would make sure that they've already cultivated the subtlety of breathing before they advanced a technique like that because when I breathe too much gas or I offload too much gas, yes, I could change my state of consciousness, but I'm also stifling oxygen from being released, which is why I can have a change of consciousness because my body is only going to send oxygen to my brain and my heart to keep me alive. It's going to mm. steal it from the rest of my body, which is why everything tingles. Mm. But I only want to do that for a short period of time. Otherwise, I'm going to die because I don't have liberated oxygen. So I teach fundamentals of subtlety of breathing. And in Buddhism, there's three levels of breathing. Number one is I shouldn't be able to hear you breathe. If I'm standing next to you and I can yep. hear you breathing, you have dysfunctional breathing. If I can hear myself breathing, I have dysfunctional breathing. The third level of breathing is that I'm breathing so light, so quiet, and so still that I'm involuntarily breathing like a baby. And that is where my state of consciousness is at that level all the time. I want to live high. I don't want to achieve like the plant medicine or even for me, a hyperventilation breath, even though I would like to try it because I'm at a different level. I want to be able to live high all the time. And that's called the, that's called the controlled pause. So when I have a high threshold to CO2, it means that I'm liberating oxygen more often and I'm removing waste as I produce it and the waste doesn't collect in the interstitium, which is fascia. So I mm. have this balance of what we call chemoreception, which is the fundamental building blocks of all cellular life on the planet. The balance between carbon dioxide and oxygen. It is the, the primal uh, source of life. So mm. I teach people to increase their CO2 levels and increase their threshold to carbon dioxide and the higher your carbon dioxide level threshold gets, you therefore begin to live on that level where the presence is in you all the time because you're breathing subtlety. You master the art of breathing gently. And humans don't do gentle, right? You know, through it makes own. so much sense. Yeah. I always say, you know, a stronger, a stronger heart can afford a more gentle rhythm. You know, a, a mm. strong man can afford to be gentle. I think that's the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu, that said that. But, um, yeah, it's the concept of less is more. You know, the more strong you are, the more you can actually afford to be gentle. And it's, it's so crazy how, much, like, how in alignment everything you just said was with basically my philosophy on breathwork without me even knowing, like, the specific chemistry of it. Um, just from my intuition and my practice, most of the breathwork that I teach is really, really slow breathing with mostly exhale holds. So... Anytime that I go over like the TCM Tumo, it's really like like my beginner level one course, right, is a pre-recorded session. You know, it has the faster one for the people who want to get into the fast stuff, but there's two sessions. One is the fast one and one is the slow one. 
And the slow one is the one I recommend doing first. And that's the first thing in the morning one, post-workout one, you know, before bed one, the one that you're doing way more often than the other one. The other one is kind of almost like a novelty one, in my opinion. Um, so the slow one in that first session, it's kind of just slowing down the breath as silent, quiet, and po- quiet as possible. And then after a couple minutes of just breathing as slow and silent as possible with the music on, then we get into the holds and we just start holding on, you know, for this one, it's the level one. So we hold on the inhale and the exhale and basically trying to stretch out eventually to one breath per minute by the last breath. And there's 18 breaths total exhale and inhale hold being one breath total combined. So 18 breaths total. We're like trying to stretch it out. Then once you get to like the higher levels, like three and four, then it's pretty much all exhale holds and then really slow inhale holds. And then the exhales are actually all sounds. So you let out with a sound like, uh, and you hold the sound for as long as you can possibly go and draw it out as slow and close your teeth and keep it as controlled and slow as possible. And then as soon as you can't let out any more sound, then you hold on the exhale for as long as you can. And then when you get the urge to breathe, you just inhale slowly and then right back into another sound. So it's, it's pretty, it's basically the same thing. It's really similar. And it's interesting that I didn't even know any of the specific chemistry stuff just from my personal practice and doing it. I originally learned, you know, hold on the exhale and inhale. And the more that I did it, it was like, I feel less called to hold on the inhales and more called to hold on the exhales. And the longer I hold on the exhales and roll my abs and suck in my stomach, like it just feels a million times better. Mm. Yeah, because you're liberating oxygen. (laughs) And when you do that, for the most part, it's going to go to your brain because your brain demands the most amount of oxygen. It so feels gonna, like it goes to the brain. Yeah, well, it's going to go right to your prefrontal cortex that houses your pleasure center and your executive center. And that, mm-hmm. for most of us, that's what we're burning through. So the liver and the brain demand the most amount of oxygen. But when you're doing that, that's how you're re- retraining the brain. And the brain only knows three things. Forget, forget cognitive learning. The brain knows namaste, the God in me honors the God in you. Number two, I'm calm. That's parasympathetic. And number three, I feel safe. To me, that's the most important part. Because the brain doesn't know fight or flight. It's a reactionary response, primal response. Protect me. Right? And when when I'm in the fight or flight response, my body can't rest and digest. So I don't want to be in there very long. I want to be in there very short, when animals get away, they stop and they recover. And if you think about training too, right? Even humans, we overtrain because animals don't train, they play. They yep. play and that's how they train their body. And we are forcing everything, especially when we train. We're forcing the body, forcing the body to make these adaptations. And that's the worst way to do it. I'm trying to change everything about athletics because I've been an athlete my whole life and I was, my nervous system was shot. And now that I'm finally getting into that and it's taken a long time, but like you said, I'm exactly where I need to be. So now that I'm getting to that state, I'm like, Oh my God, I really, I, I have to teach this like you. I mean, the more you go, that's how I felt too. I was like, I just have to teach this stuff. It's just, changing my life in such a profound way. I need to share it with the world. Like the world needs to know this. Right. Or at least be able to 
have the opportunity to. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm totally in alignment with that goal as well of bringing like slowness and gentleness and fluidity to everything. But I, I really agree, especially athletics is an area of life that it's very, very needed, very desperately needed amongst athletes. It, we have this mentality of like, you know, even society in general wants us to be super in this masculine state where we are giving energy, giving, 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 constantly working out so much, constantly going to work to make money, to do things. It's always like, what's the next thing we have to do? What's the next, like, there's no relaxing. There's no, you know, in Spanish, tranquilo. There's no, there's no chilling out. There's no resting. There's no importance on the recharging and the feminine aspect of things, the receiving end. You know, we were taught that we're not supposed to receive the same way that we give. Always give more than you take. Always give more than you receive instead of balancing that exchange out in everything you do. Mm. As much as you're working out, you should be equally resting. And I'm such an advocate for less is more in every aspect of everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's I've no yeah. I've it's noticed with a lot of my stuff, like with surfing, for example, when I went to the Dominican Republic and I started, you know, surfing there, I was, you know, as a kid, always more on the short board, you know, the smaller board where you want to have more turns and you want to be more aggressive with the wave and, you know, that whole style of surfing tricks and all that. And then I got to the Dominican and there was these little waves and just mm -hmm. like these big boards and I ended up getting a big long board. And, you know, now it's more like, you know, cruising and chilling and having a good time and sitting out in the water and enjoying the day and looking at the sun and seeing the view. And it just changed my perspective on everything. It's not so much of me having to prove something. I don't have to do like the coolest trick to like think I'm good enough. It's kind of like I'm just out here like experiencing life and enjoying every moment that I'm in, in that experience. And yeah. everything about my life going from that perspective, I mean, it's obviously been way more things than surfing has been just so much more beautiful. Even traveling, like not being in a rush. Like my flight on the way to Nicaragua got stuck because of weather and I ended up having to stay in Houston for a night. And I just wasn't in a rush. Like, and I was just like, whatever, I guess I'm staying tonight in Houston and just like hung out and had some conversations with people. And it was just like a fun time. And where yeah. like two years ago, I would have been like freaking out, complaining to everybody and bugging out that like, oh, I'm not there yet, whatever. Blah, blah. And, you know, slowing everything down and just allowing yourself to be okay in the moment. Like, Right. You know, we don't, we don't let ourselves think that we're okay in the moment a lot. And that's honestly because we're breathing like we're getting chased by a bear when we're sitting in a chair. <laughs> right. That's right. You're exactly right. It's all, it's all about your breathing. You're an air gas engine and your heart doesn't circulate blood. It's just a really big valve. Your diaphragm yeah. and your lungs are what circulate your blood. And the electricity. I actually, I wrote a whole book on this after studying Dr. Thomas oh. Cowan's work. Um, oh, yeah. I called it Heart Disease Dehydration. Um, it's only like 16, 17 pages, but it's pretty, wow. I think it was pretty interesting, the, the concept, and I, I had to write about it and, and share it. It's basically wow. the idea yeah. that um, the electricity in the blood is what allows um, the blood to actually flow and fuels it. So he breaks down how, you know, evidence to show that the heart's not a pump and that, you know, the aortic valve, as the, the blood leaves the heart, it actually kinks instead of extending. Like if you were going to blast water into a hose, it would extend, but it actually kinks as it goes because of the vacuum and how the heart is what's known as like a hydraulic ram. It's a human creation that only allows for about 70%, um, you know, ejection fraction, which is why we have the ejection fraction in our heart and 70% is optimal. And, you know, the further you get down, the worse, you know, your heart is performing. 
but it's the concept that the electricity, you know, free flowing electrons in the blood when there is water against a hydrophilic surface. So the proteins that line our blood vessels are hydrophilic surfaces. So as those electrons allow, you know, flow through, they create the fourth phase of water, the plasma, which is like a coating that coats the lining of the blood vessels. And that's all electronegative. Lots of electrons are in that plasma, that like gel phase of water in the blood, which is also made me think interestingly about the sediment and the stuff that coats the outside of the jar and the urine as you age it, you know, when you put it in the sun compared to not putting it in the sun, super interesting stuff. But inside that, you know, inside the blood vessels, you know, let's say you have this, like the inside, like this is a weird example physically, but you know, (laughs) the, the inside, like the gel would be on the outside and then the inside is all positive ions that repel each other. And that's what flows. That's what fuels the blood flow, the repelling of positive ions inside that, you know, negative, yeah. charge plasma on the outside. Did you, did you know that they just awarded the Nobel Prize this year to piezoelectricity? No, I did not know that. That's what you're talking about. You should type in the 2021 Nobel Prize and read about it because it's what you're talking about. Interesting. Okay, cool. I'll yes. check it out. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Thomas Cowan is a really cool guy. Um, he's amazing. I, I really... I really like his work a lot and especially the stuff that he's been talking about as far as germ theory and, you know, the whole contagion myth book that he wrote and, you know, yeah. his uh, interview yeah. on the health freedom for humanity podcast with Alex Zach is brilliant with mm. Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Um, mm. oh, Kaufman. Really yeah. awesome. Yeah. I love how like, you know, they literally like gave up their doctor's licenses to like, you know, be in alignment with their truth and what they learned and right. how, you know, everything that they learned goes directly against what they're being told to do. Right. You know, and, you know, uh, we got people like everyone's like, oh, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan. Oh, Peter McCullough, Peter McCullough, Dr. Malone. Uh, they didn't tell the truth. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Cowan, Dr. Norton. Wait, is it Norton? No, Robert Young. He's mm-hmm. on Cowan's yeah. level because he's talking about radiation. Right. And yeah. uh, and Dr. Hammer from Germany about virology. How there's no such yep. thing as anything like a virus, you know, yep. Doctor. They're solvents. Oh my God! This, yeah, we're on the same. That's page. a whole different. We could do a whole episode on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, I I've really enjoyed tonight, brother. I really enjoyed tonight. For this sure. has been great. Um, Mutual enjoyment, brother, for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to do it again. I know you have class coming up, and after you're done teaching your class, I would love to take you through one of my breathwork sessions. And then that would be uh, great. we can, we can come back on and, and really just discuss more too. It'd be great. I think. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I mean, I know we both have a lot more to say in general, so that definitely aligns. We could definitely yeah. get on for multiple episodes. I really enjoyed this. Thank you a lot for sharing, you know, all your information and everything was brilliantly helpful for me. Honestly, I'm at the point in my journey where I kind of am ready for like the chemistry, the, the physical tangible side of things. And, uh, it's, you know, like anything kind of hard to find real information on anything actually valuable. So your page is very refreshing for me. So you are genuinely appreciated, my friend, Uh, everybody for coming in. Thank you. Grateful to have shared the space with all of you and you, Brian. And, uh, yeah, for those of you who are interested in signing up for breathwork bootcamp, check out uh, thecaputomethod.com and you can check out the information on the course there. It starts on Thursday, January 27th and goes until the 4th, the February 4th. So anybody who's interested, send me a DM or check out the website or check out my Instagram. There's 
information about it all over the place. Brian, um, where can everybody find you and, you know, what are your current offerings? Uh, my Instagram is breathing with Brian, Brian with a Y. Uh, my business page is called quantumfitness.org because we talk about energy. So hmm. it's about energy, about bringing those positive electrons into my body through oxygen. Uh, I offer a transformational 30-day breathing course that's um, a one-time price, and you get to keep all the videos. You get one video every single day. I have a private Telegram group where once you program, we're connected for life. I do weekly Zoom sessions. I do small group training classes. So after the beginner class, you can elevate the method, and we get into small group classes, and I also offer one-on-one -on -one training. I'm a WEC method coach. I study GOTA. So I'm in, involved in the movement aspect of, of the diaphragm and how the oscillation of the breath works. And that's pretty much it. You know, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve, here to open open the, uh, the channels. Love it, Brian. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you, everyone else in here for yes. joining as well. Yeah. Again, check out the CaputoMethod.com. This is the Grove from the Garden podcast, episode 11 with Brian Mirabella and Nick Caputo. Thank you, everyone, again. Much love. Peace. Much love. Peace and love, everyone.